Welcome to another episode of Ed Luminaries with Alejandra Zertuche, CEO of Enflux, who brings you powerful educator perspectives hailing from all walks of life. Get inspired and obtain great takeaways that you can apply to help set your students up for success. Sometimes all it takes is to hear how innovative educators approach similar problems and overcome obstacles to support breakthrough academic success. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us today. I'm Alejandra Sartuche and you're listening to the Ed Luminaries podcast where we talk with educational leaders to find out how they're thinking and working creatively to drive student success. In today's episode, what does it mean to admit the right student? We're going to hear from Dr. Megan Milkshurik, Head of Education and Assessment at Influx. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ally. It's always good to talk with you. Well, we talk every day. We're so mm-hmm. happy that you joined our team about, has been three months now? Two? Three? Yeah, almost four, I think we're coming up on, right? Oh time my flies. God. Time flies when you're, ha- I always say, time flies when you're having A lot of fun, but also a lot of work. (laughs) Very true. Megan, the question of the day, what does it mean to admit the right student? Yeah, so that's something I think we all talk about in higher education, particularly in the programs that we serve, which are largely in healthcare. Um, You know, we want to make sure that the students we're bringing into our programs are prepared and um, ready to undertake the serious task of becoming a healthcare professional. We put a lot of trust in those people. Um, As we've seen in recent years, we really have expanded the role of our healthcare professionals in our lives and every aspect of it. And so there's a deep trust there that we want to build. So everybody is is thinking about when we're talking into admissions, how do we admit successful students? But the question is, what is a right student? Um, what is the right fit for your program? And I think a lot of us struggle with identifying that and, and even thinking outside of the box of what it might mean to be the correct student. You used to work at the Wilkes University. Um, correct. What were some of the parameters that were they were utilizing to identify that fit of the right student in the program? Because I like the way you said it. It's not like just admitting the right the right student based on everyone's point of view, but it's admitting the right student for our program. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when I was at Wilkes and certainly in talking with a lot of our clients, they're looking at those indicators of SAT, math and science GPA and overall GPA to see if students are prepared to be successful in their programs. And then many of them are tying it to specific coursework and then to endpoints like NAPLEX or board exams to see if there are indicators within the curriculum that tie back to those admissions indicators that help to determine whether or not or predict whether or not a student will be successful. But to me, I think something that's ignored is everything that happens before those admissions indicators come to bear. So, you know, we know that academic outcomes and attainment have changed in recent years. Math and reading scores are lower in 2020 than in 2012 for for 13 year old students. So they take a benchmark exam when they're um, in eighth, uh, when they're younger, an eight, eight year old, and then they take it again at 13, this nationwide sort of benchmarking. And we can see that that has declined. And certainly, 
I think we can all point to shutdowns during the pandemic, but that test was taken in 2020. So there was a lot of education that happened before then. Um, we have fewer high school students completing calculus in the past 10 years than are completing other math programs. And that's like a 3% uh, difference. It's a, it's a pretty big drop in the number of students taking calc. So you can think already that's going to affect their SAT score, their ACT score. If they don't have that math, their math science GPA might be a little bit different if you're considering what math they take. Um, and then we also know on top of that, there's this rub of a, a college education can set you up for success that's longer ranging. Um, educational attainment is key to increased income. So, you know, having a bachelor's degree puts you at 63% higher median income than not having one. So the ability to earn income and then affect the lives of your children in their educational attainment in K through 12 are really affected by your ability to get into the right program, which can then be affected by how great your high school education was and the opportunities you had in there. So when we're talking about the right student, we have to kind of consider those environmental factors that go into the opportunities that our students who are applying may or may not have had and whether or not we can meet them where they are in our programs. It's, it's, we need to consider the factors impacting the student uh, knowledge and prepare for the next degree, right? Because uh, when they graduate high school, they'll go to their bachelor's. So you need to understand those factors and the readiness to, to enroll in a bachelor's degree. And I like right. the point that you made of um, the percent of students that are completing calculus. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I always think about the curriculum, right? And, and and if your program, let's say they want to enroll in a, in a specific degree, degree X, if degree X requires have some knowledge on calculus and the students didn't take calculus and your program doesn't provide that intro level of calculus, then there's not a good fit. Correct. Both sides. Right. Or you have prerequisites. We know that that can be an issue where the quality of the prereq that they're taking can vary. So if they take their prereq calculus at this university, they're more likely to pass than at this one. And those issues can then affect their ability to get into programs, all of which have nothing to do necessarily with the students' abilities, but, not, but with the opportunities that they've been um, offered. And also it expands the, the length of the completing a degree if the student has to take a lot of prerequisites to join a program. Correct. Which increases yeah. student loans. Right, exactly. And then all of this is cyclical. So if we think about it, you know, these students then graduate either either with degrees or without, or, you know, you have students who don't go to school, and then that affects their livelihood, their ability to earn income, and the opportunities their children have. And so it's wash, rinse, repeat through the entire cycle, right? Um, and so when we think about that, it, our responsibility in higher ed becomes a little bit bigger than just the four years that we have students there. It becomes about our role inside the entire educational system and inside society and how we can help people to have better lives, more income attainment, and uh, better educational opportunities for their future children. Absolutely. I love that. Megan, what would you recommend to someone that is looking at their admissions criteria, they're looking at their program, they're looking at their curriculum? What would you um, advise someone to, to consider within their admissions rubric? 
I think um, two-year institutions have been really good at this in positioning themselves as meeting students where they are. And I think all institutions can do this as well by thinking about what their curriculum is designed to do. And we often call this a curricular philosophy. So if you've never sat down and had a conversation as a school about what your approach and your philosophy is to your curriculum, then you run the risk of becoming what an article published last year in AJPE referred to as curricular hoarders, right? And so this is the idea that as a curricular hoarders are people who just by opportunity and wanting stuff, just just take it all, right? There's no discrimination. Whereas collectors, if you think about somebody who's a collector, they're very, very careful about what they cultivate into their collection and what they leave out of their collection. So we don't want to be hoarders. We want to be collectors. And so we want to be intentional about what we're bringing into our curriculum and have an approach that meets our students and meets our needs for the profession as well. So if we think about a philosophy, it's like a rudder on a boat. It's going to keep us in the direction that we want it to be. What happens when the program, after looking at all of this, they understand what's the win-win strategy for the student in the program? Mm -hmm. um, and they become um, student collectors. They're collecting the right students, the right fit. But what happens if there's not enough applicant pool? Because it's happening. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, we are all fighting for the same students. But I think the risk becomes when we start to copy what we're seeing other schools doing, we lose the unique special sauce, if you will, that makes the institution what it is and what we can, what you can offer to students that's unique from what every other pharmacy program, every other vet program, every other whatever degree program it is that you're offering offers. So we don't want to be cookie cutter in the sense that it works over there. We should copy it over here. We want to show students what makes us unique and also how we can make them a unique fit for their profession. So the, the risk is in copying and the reward is really in doing the hard work to make your, or to promote the uniqueness of your programs, your faculty, your staff, your offerings. And I think there's also an opportunity um, to meet the students where they are, like analyze the applicant pool. What yes. are their trends and areas of opportunity? And based on that, how, what changes do you need to make to your curriculum so that your competitive advantage is that you you bring that pool of applicants and ensure like provide some insurance that your curriculum will take them will 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 bring them where meet them where they are but yep. then help them obtain the competency that they need to be professional in their career absolutely absolutely yeah. Uh, of course, everything is easier said, said than done. It's <laughs> of course it of is. It's, it's, a, it's a ton of work, but it's work that's worth doing because it's work that I think to me makes everybody sit comfortably inside the goals of their job, the goals of how they pr pr um, provide education to students and how they approach their entire job. Um, I think it, it's a lot better to have a, a really clear direction than it is to kind of just set people off without a map. Absolutely. And Megan, we, we just went uh, to the Physician Assistant Education Association Forum. Yeah. Um, it was two weeks ago. It feels like it yeah. was yet so much fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. It was a great conference. Um, but we were talking about how everyone was coming to the booth and talking to you about we have students at risk. We're trying to figure out everyone is talking about predictive analytics. How can we yes. predict that the students are going to be successful? 
right? Mm -hmm. What were some of those insights that you learned and shared with them during that conference? So what was interesting is that the majority of people I talked to were looking at academic indicators of success. And even in a beautiful model, LA, we know that we're lucky if we get sort of 40% of the variance being the cause of the data, right? Like that's that's really good for social science sort of stuff, but that means there's 60% out there. So the, the insight that I would try to bring is, you know, you can admit that unicorn student, you can build the model, you can find that perfect student, but what you can't predict is what's going to happen while they're in school. You can't predict their motivation. You can't pr predict their grit. You can't predict that something catastrophic may happen in their lives, that the perfect student now becomes the student who struggles. So we, we, we don't know about some of the struggles our students will experience. But if we know about them when they're coming in because we've analyzed and we've looked for the weaknesses and we've looked for the strengths, we can help them be super successful um, by tailoring our approach to that. And competency-based ed is a really great version of that, right? So that's the discussions that we're having. And a lot of the programs are moving that way. And, and that was something I was hearing a lot at the PAEA conference, that they're looking to either continue or move into more of a competency base to help students have that iterative learning process. Do you think that the programs have a good understanding that competency-based education is all about the student owning their own journey, taking accountability, right? And in order to, to be able to do that, they need constant feedback. Right. And some programs still do things on spreadsheets, takes time, or they're not collecting the right data. Um, so if you miss that like if you're you have that big gap of not providing constant feedback to the students, uh, my analogy of that is like dropping them in a desert and saying, hey, we we need you in this location by this time and good luck. Here's a bottle of water. We don't right. even have a map. Right. And the map is the constant feedback and Correct. the map is telling them this is where you are. And if you walk at this pace, this is how long it's going to take you to get there. Right. Competency based education. Yes. And that the speed of the data, the quality of the data, the ability to give feedback, that is all part of what makes competency-based ed work. Um, you know, you can't just say to students, you have seven chances to pass this without saying, and here's why you failed on, or here's where you went wrong on attempts one through six. And it needs to be timely. You know, it needs to be actionable. It needs to be feedback that the students can do something with. It's no longer acceptable to just be like, great work or try harder. We need the, well, what made it great? And why do I need to try harder? Where do I need to try harder? Um, and so the more you're doing things sort of in an analog digital way, right, the way I like to say it, you're on spreadsheets, which is digital, but you're really in sort of um, manual processes on those spreadsheets, the longer it's going to take to get that feedback. Um, and so certainly, uh, we can definitely help with that speed of, of, of feedback. And that's why I'm here is that that ability to um, give people what they need when they need it in that in that fashion that helps students be successful is really the goal. Make, yeah, absolutely. Helping faculty help the students be successful, providing them with that right insight at the right time. Because identifying a student at risk is still data. And if you yep. tell the student you fail or you're failing because you got a 65 on the second exam or final exam, that's still data. And that's yes. not going to support or, or be 
improving or being um, uh, have an impact on competency-based education. Right. What needs to be done is you're failing, you're at risk because you got a 65 on the final exam. And let's take a look on how you're performing on the competencies and Correct. why are you not passing the courses? Right. And it helps our students say, you know, for this test, I really need to focus on my math and my calculation skills or boy, my knowledge retention is really low and I need to go back to some of my flashcards. Um, and we can really direct students to meaningful tasks and meaningful studying and meaningful content instead of just, you need to study harder. Yeah. And it's not just for the students. It's also for the curriculum development and ongoing Correct. quality improvement. Um, you need to understand what's working, not working. Do we need to shuffle some courses? Do mm -hmm. we cover a competency more often? Um, right. I mean, we both have seen this where mm -hmm. a student goes through the whole program. They're a B student, never get in trouble, but also they're not the right. top of the class. They go and take the board exam and they're failing two or three competencies. Yeah. And everybody goes, what do we do? What do we do about that? How do we figure that out? How did that happen? We never yeah. had a problem with that student. Right. But then you go back and you look and you're like, oh, they always did poorly on that content. X, Y, and Z. Every single time they did, you know, every question they got wrong or their lowest attainment area were in these competencies. Huh. No wonder they failed. Right. Um, so if we can do that on the front end and then solve for it, then we don't have the surprise on the back end. But if we do it on the front end, we need to make sure that we don't just have data, that we have insights. Exactly. Because data is still the SAT score, the all the admission assessments, that's still data. Um, mm -hmm. How do they did on the different courses? And is, is the undergrad program providing any type of competency or right. um, outcomes performance? Yep. And I think often we think of ourselves, we talk about silos and we think, oh, well, you know, they weren't prepared by the previous. So that's the problem of the previous it's, it is, and it isn't, you know, we're part of that system. So where can we be problem solvers? And we are self and socially acknowledged experts in these fields. So why wouldn't we be, be the ones to help solve the problem and help shore up the deficiencies that we know our students are coming with? Absolutely. We see that over and over and over again, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, Megan, thank you so much for today's conversation. This is extremely yeah. helpful. Some of the, the last questions that I want to ask you is, um, what are some of the resources that you you would suggest people to go and read or um, oh, sure. what are some of the things that you're reading? Yeah. So, you know, when you're trying to get sort of more assessment knowledge, I am a big fan of AALHE, which is the Association for Assessment of Learning in Higher Education. Um, they and NILOA, the National Institute for Learning Outcomes Assessment, just provide a ton of links and resources um, to all of those, re those things that help us to build foundational assessment processes that work. Um, I also, I, I'm, I'm laughing because I actually have my laptop sitting on a copy of using evidence of student, student learning to um, improve higher education. So those things are always around for me. And then keeping your fingers on the pulse of the journals 
in your discipline. Many of them have educational journals as well. You know, I come from pharmacy ed, so um, I would read currents in, I, I would read and I would also review for currents in pharmacy education. Um, and you can see sort of what people are doing to be inventive in that space uh, and with, within your discipline as well. Wonderful. Those are great resources. And, and yeah. that's some of the things I do in my free time, some of my little yeah. free time. That's um, right. And actually, uh, this week I was reading the journal for uh, physician assistant programs, which nice. has a lot about curriculum evaluation, student success. Um, yeah. um, so Megan, the last question, in your own words, what does it mean? Uh, what does student success mean to you? Oh, student success. So to, you know, to me, a student, successful student is one who is accomplishing the goals that they've set out for themselves, who is doing it in a way that they feel healthy, that they feel cared for, um, and that they feel that they're contributing to their own education. So a successful student isn't about an A or a B or a C. It's about how they feel as they're moving through the program, how supported they are, and then whether or not they're able to achieve the goal that they set out for themselves. I love that answer. Well, Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. It, yeah, it's been a pleasure me. to have you today here at the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to today's series on what does it mean to admit the right student? You can subscribe to our events by going to nflux.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn where we post announcements about our solution and resources like today's session. I'm Alejandra Sertuche and you have been listening to Ed Luminaries. Just listen to Ed Luminaries, inspiring stories and ideas from educators to educators with Alejandra Zertuche. Connect with us at edluminaries.com to join the conversation and access the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.